This is Speaking Freely with the ACLU of Pennsylvania. I'm Andy Hoover, your host and director of communications at the ACLU of PA. We have mentioned before on the pod that 2020 marks the 100th anniversary of the American Civil Liberties Union. In 1920, a determined band of activists and organizers and lawyers created the ACLU on the heels of government oppression against anti-war protesters and against immigrants in the midst of a Red Scare that led to harassment, detention, and deportations. Throughout 2020, we have been celebrating our centennial, and part of that celebration is the publication of a new book called Fight of the Century, Writers Reflect on 100 Years of Landmark ACLU Cases. The book features essays by 40 writers, each of whom writes about a different case. The book is a rich collection of diverse voices. Some write about their personal connections to a case. Some provide intimate details of the stakeholders involved in a case. The editors of Fight of the Century are Michael Shabon and Ayelet Waldman. And as part of our centennial celebration in Pittsburgh, I had the chance to talk with Michael and Ayelet about the process of putting the book together and their own insights about civil liberties. I think you'll find this conversation enlightening and entertaining. All proceeds from sales of the book will be donated to the ACLU, and we have teamed up with the White Whale Bookstore in Pittsburgh to sell signed copies. For those of you who don't live in Pittsburgh or who do not want to go out due to COVID concerns, White Whale has an online purchase option, and there is a link to it in the show notes. Let's hear from Michael Shabon and Ayelet Waldman talking about their book, Fight of the Century with a wonderful introduction from ACLUPA supporter Erin Marie Williams-Hatala. I am Erin Marie Williams-Hatala. I'm a former Pittsburgh chapter board member and a nearly lifelong supporter of the ACLU. My parents married one another less than two years after it became legal for across the U.S. for people like them to get married to one another. And when I was little and my brothers were little, My father used to sing us Tom Lair songs instead of lullabies, and he told us of ACLU court cases instead of reading us bedtime stories. (laughs) So appropriately enough, we are here tonight to listen to and to learn about some of the most important stories of our country with two of the most important writers of our country. And when I was told about tonight and who would be speaking, I thought, well, that makes sense because this is a celebration of superheroes, right? Or at least of superheroic feats. And I don't mean superheroes along the lines of Superman, the ones that are dripping ego and honestly a little bit boring. The ACLU has never been the biggest or the strongest or the best funded. The ACLU has never had the shiniest teeth and hair. The ACLU is more like Spider-Man, fast and scrappy, and maybe at times prone to bite off a little bit more than people think is wise. And the ACLU is never, ever boring. So let's get to it. This evening, we get to learn about some of the most heroic and long odds cases of the ACLU by two people who know quite a bit about superheroes and about fighting the good fight against seemingly impossible odds. And they also happen to know quite a bit about the ACLU. So please welcome writers Ayelet Waldman and Michael Shabone as they share their stories of telling the ACLU's most important stories. And here to guide us through this conversation is the Director of Communications for the ACLU of Pennsylvania, Andy Hoover. Thanks, Erin Marie. Good evening, everyone. It's great to be here, and it's exciting to be kicking off our ACLU Centennial Pittsburgh Celebration. Uh, It's a little different than what we were planning when we started to work on this in 2019, but alas, uh, it is where we are, and uh, we make do, which means that Michael and Ayelet can join us from rural Maine this evening. Uh, (laughs) Right, hence the the orange cap. Mm -hmm. Um, I just want to make a couple of uh, notes here, some housekeeping notes. Um, First of all, I want to acknowledge the White Whale Bookstore in Pittsburgh, which has partnered with us to sell this book, Fight of the Century. That's so um, cool. I haven't been back to Pittsburgh in a while. I didn't realize there was a White Whale bookstore. There is indeed. Um, and we'll make sure the link is in the chat. Um, folks can pick up signed copies of the book, or you can even order a lot online. So for anybody that's not in Pittsburgh, um, you can order it by mail as well. 
Uh, we are taking questions, so feel free to offer the questions in the chat. And we also are recording this, so it will be reposted as a podcast episode for our podcast, Speaking Freely. So Ayelet and Michael, um, I do want to do just a little bit of an introduction of both of you, if I can. Um, you are both uh, well-accomplished writers. Uh, Ayelet is a, a, a best-selling author of both fiction and nonfiction. And Ayelet, it was interesting when I was looking at the titles uh, in your bio, one that did stick out to me was a book called Inside This Place, Not Of It, Narratives from Women's Prisons. That in yeah. and of itself sounds like a book that could make for a an ACLU book discussion. Mm -hmm. I think so, probably. Um, Ayelet was also a federal public defender and an adjunct professor at the uh, UC Berkeley Law School and developed and taught a course there on the legal implications of the war on drugs. Michael is an accomplished novelist, winner of the Pulitzer Prize for Fiction. Uh, he has also worked in films and both Ayelet and Michael have a production deal right now with CBS, which includes the series Star Trek Picard, which is available on CBS All Access. And perhaps uh, most noteworthy, Michael, for this crowd is that you actually spent part of your childhood in Pittsburgh. Oh, yeah. Yes. Yeah. I have a strong Pittsburgh background, definitely. And attended CMU and, uh, and the University of Pittsburgh. Mm -hmm. Yep. My first two books are set in Pittsburgh. Very yep. cool. Um, so let's just get get to this book, uh, Fight of the Century. Writers reflect on 100 years of landmark ACLU cases. So let's just start at the beginning. What was the origin of this project? Trauma. Trump trauma. <laughs> well, I mean, actually, I think even before that, you mentioned her book, the book she co-edited in, uh, what is it? Uh, Inside This Inside Place. Inside This Place, not up. I mean, in some ways, that was the beginning of your understanding of this kind of book. Of right of like of my interest in uh, the idea of um, putting together books that can both be interesting from a literary perspective and also have a social justice message. Um, and so Michael and I actually did another book before this, which was called Kingdom of Olives and Ash, in which we took a couple of dozen writers and we took them to uh, Israel and Palestine. And we didn't say they had to write, they could write about anything they wanted. Um, they could we sort of, they asked us what, we asked them what they wanted to see. We took them around and they, we ended up with this volume about primarily about occupation, um, mostly Palestinian side, but also like some, uh, you know, there was a writer who had a sister who was a, an Orthodox Jew living on a settlement. So it was this really, really interesting book about what occupation means and um, what social justice means in the context of Israel and Palestine. So we have the perspective of these incredible writers, incredibly gifted writers. So we had this here, we had this um, sort of model in our brain. And then when Trump won in 2016, we were so traumatized as I'm sure many of you were um, and still are. <laughs> yeah. I feel like this latest election is really, you know, a, uh, a lesson in how what people feel when how people operate when they're operating from a place of deep profound trauma um and so i i have a friend who's uh who is at the aclu we were friends in law school and he he is um i believe he's still the head of the gay and lesbian rights project at the aclu so i called him right after the election and i said i don't know if a couple of novelists can help you but if there's Anything you got, we can do. We're here. We are, you know, the ACLU is our organization. We're also, we've also been members forever. My parents, our parents were both members. It's like, you know, your, your parents are members too, right? Yeah, for yeah. sure. So it's sort of a legacy thing. James Essex, your friend. My friend James Essex, yes, the brilliant James Essex. Thank you. Yep. Mm -hmm. James is fantastic. So, and he's actually working with us on several cases. Oh, good. Yeah. I mean, he's, he's just the best. So smart. And we, I mean, you were, you were partly motivated too, not just by our both that we had a background of, you know, in our families of supporting the SLU and our, and our sense of trauma and despair and everything, but also Anthony Romero's, was it a tweet? Well, it was just, was it was remark? right away that all at the, at, at the ACLU, you guys said right away, the first thing I read was see you in court. And it was so empowering in a moment where we felt utterly disempowering. Mm -hmm. And it gave us the feeling, okay, this is going to suck, but they have our backs. And it really has been true. This has sucked 
probably more than we even imagined. Mm-hmm. And the ACLU has had our backs probably more than we even imagined possible. So um, James got back to me and he said, you know what? We're having our centennial. We, I love that book you did, Kingdom of Olives and Ash. There's an amazing woman who used to work for the ACLU, Stacey Sullivan, was, who was um, in sort of media relations. And uh, Stacey said, let's do this. Let's work together on a book. And so we you know, we, we put the word out to our friends, all of these literary novelists, all, and some, um, nonfiction writers, every single person said, yes, it was incredible. Like usually writers will never, ever do anything if you don't pay them. Mm -hmm. I mean, it's almost uncanny, like more than anybody else, like a dentist is more liable to drill your teeth (laughs) for free Mm -hmm. than a writer is Mm -hmm. to do a favor like that. But everybody was also just looking for something to do a way to help. So every, and some people didn't actually come through. Um, But compared to trying to recruit people to do the Israel book where people were like, yes, I, I'm fascinated by that. I really care about that. I know it's really important. I am not going there. Like I won't set foot in that sort of hornet's nest. Or I I don't want to trust, touch that with a 10 foot pole, you know, forget it. You go get all the Jews mad at you. Mm -hmm. Um, so it was it was it was a very easy sell, and also we had a lot you know had a, a nice long deadline, mm-hmm. so I could say, hey, this is not going to be like you, you got years to worry mm-hmm. about this. Mm-hmm. Don't worry. And then um, you know we were incredibly lucky because Simon and Schuster stepped up right away, um, knowing that they probably weren't going to make a profit off this book, and knowing that all of the royalties were going to be going to the ACLU. I mean, no, but none of the writers we nobody took any money. Um, and Simon and Schuster just, you know, they did it anyway, which was really incredible. And they gave a nice fat advance, all of which went to you guys. Um, although it's so funny because um, Chrissy Teigen and John Legend, right when we were in the middle of this, and it was a lot of work. We can talk about that. But like editing 40 plus writers and all and getting corralling them and hurting them and getting the book done and making sure everybody had the resources, the research resources they need to really write about their cases and helping guide them. and um, you know, it was a lot of work. And yeah. then Chris Egan and John Legend put this thing like support the ACLU. And in like 30 minutes, they raised a million dollars. Right, right. Writers and books just don't have the same. We never do anything nice. But this is an object that will examine. Think about a book as it is the thing you can hold in your hands and it's there forever. So that's the way I comfort myself. That tweet is gone. It's mm-hmm. gone. Mm-hmm. So that's that's how this all started. And then it was, you know, a couple of years of pretty intense labor. I want to ask you about that. And it's interesting, you know, you think back to the memories of right after the 2016 election, early 2017. Yeah, what enough. you described there was really what we saw, as you can imagine, our, in our offices. I mean, just a flood of interest and desire to do something. You know, we created a database where we were, you know, we were sorting people out by skills. You know, we had people who were editors or videographers, uh, translators, just a wide array of skills. And this is the exact same experience that you're describing where it's like, I want to do something and what are my skills that I can bring to the table to help in this situation? So let's talk about the writers. You know, how did you pick the writers and and how did they pick their cases? Like, how did that whole process work? So we just reached out to the best writers we know. You know, we know a lot of writers and we have a lot of favorites. And, you know, it's funny because a lot of people have said to us, oh, my God, you have some, such racial diversity. So many women, so many black people, Asians. How did you do that? And I'm like, well, it turns out if you actually just reach out to the best writers, you know, you get a lot of diversity. Because, yeah, um, you know, the best writers we know include people like Jessamine Ward and Jacqueline Woodson and um, Viet Nguyen, you know, there's it's it's inherent in the process. So and like I said, everybody wanted to do it. So basically, we were thinking, who could tell a good story? Who could write beautifully? Like someone like Marlon James, you're going to get a really beautiful story out of him. Um, Someone like Charlie Jane Anders, when Charlie Jane writes about trans issues, she's coming from a place of deep familiarity of like, of, you know, identity. And she's going to tell a story that's really different than anybody else is going to mm-hmm. tell. So that's part of what we were looking at is like, who can, who, who, who do we know writes beautifully? Who do we know tells a great story? And who do we know will spark to one of these cases that, um, that, uh, 
you know, these sort of seminal cases. And so that was the plan always from the beginning was to come up with a list of a fairly long list of milestone cases, seminal cases, um, victories and defeats um, uh, uh, in the history, in the hundred year history of the ACLU. And then with that list, um, just put it out there for, I mean, I think we just sent the yeah, list to everyone with annotations, sort of like very rough annotations yeah, about what the paragraph. issues were. If you didn't know some of the cases, the names are, are so well known. Um, uh, you know, like Loving versus Virginia at this point is a very well-known decision, but others are much less well-known. And, um, and a lot of writers knew instantly. They just honed in immediately on the case they wanted to write about. In fact, Loving versus Virginia was one that a number of writers, um, I think largely for the same kind of biographical reasons um, that uh, Erica Marie was talking about. Erin Marie. Marie was talking about, um, you know, that case just grabbed them. So they, we had to sort of um, disappoint a few writers because not everyone could have that. Well, we did say like, okay, if you want to do it, you guys can double up and then, mm -hmm. but it sort of naturally shook out. Um, in other cases, it took the writers much longer to sort of figure out and to learn more, to understand more about the different cases, to settle in on the case that they wanted to write about. Um, there were some writers that we went to, not only because they're great writers, but also because they're lawyers. So we had a few like that. And like in particular, well, two come to mind right away, um, Sergio de la Pava. Oh yeah. We, uh, you know, he's a, he's a public defender in New York city. If you haven't read Sergio de la Pava's work, you must go get it immediately. He is such, so you know, good. His his book came across our desk. He's he was his first book was self published, and it was incredible. Right? Was it self published? It was self published, and then he got a and trade then he deal. Got, and it was it was a it was a nominee for a prize. I was judging. Right. right? That's so why when I came we first across. read it, yeah, it was so 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 good. And he writes about you know be, having been a public defender. When I would read Sergio, I would just be like, oh my. God, I, I never have I read anybody I mean, who writes since, with such ever authenticity. Since I've known Ayala, you know, and when we met, she was a she was only a lawyer, only working as a lawyer, and she became a federal public defender. And this whole time, just decades of her saying, "When? Why does no one ever get this stuff right?" If you're watching a movie, watching a TV show, reading a book, you know, no one's conveying the actual experience of what federal, what public defenders do, what the law's like, what the reality of the everything they're up against. And then she read, yeah. what's it called? The singular, something singularity. I can't remember. It has a title that does not fit the book at all. The word <laughs> singularity is in it. I know. But anyway, I, and, I, so and I was reading, I'm like, I feel like this is like what Ayala's been describing to me. And then I, she read it. She's like, got So we knew from the beginning that he needed to be writing about Gideon versus Ray. Like mm -hmm. that had to be. And so like such a great when we reached out to him, we said, we want you to write to do this and we want you to do this about Gideon. And he was like, sure thing. And it's a great essay. That's one you guys should leaf to right away. It's a really, it's a brilliant essay. It's so, it has his sort of trademark, like grit and truth, but also there's humor in it. Mm -hmm. And yeah, he's um, very funny. He, he's, it's so it's really terrific. That's a great, that's it, a, that's one of my favorites. And then the other one is, I mean, in some ways kind of an obvious um, ask is Scott Turo. And, um, you know, that was a really interesting case because he said yes right away, right? Yes, he said but, yes right away. Yes, uh, but. Yeah, I wanted to ask you both about that. Um, <laughs> Scott Turo, actually, his chapter criticizes the ACLU's position. Yeah. So I was curious about the story, but how that ended up uh, in the book. Well, so remind me the it's Buckley. It, Buck, yeah, Buckley versus Vallejo. So he says, I'll write you an essay, and he sends us this diatribe about, so Scott writes very accurately, I might say, about how Buckley versus Vallejo, which the um, the ACLU took a position, inevitably led to Citizens United, and this idea of what constitutes speech, that political, don donating a, in a, uh, in, um, a political donation is speech, and our, our corporation's people Yes, we've decided so that the so in the and that you it, it is an in, inexorably leads to this conclusion that corporations can donate as much money and they can't be limited because their donations are speech and their people. And he was like, See how you fucked up ACLU? You destroyed American politics. Mm -hmm. And it was so funny because we loved the essay, but we were like, uh oh. <laughs> so we reached out to David and Anthony and David Cole and Anthony Romero. And we said, Okay. Just FYI, what do you guys think of this? And Anthony was 
thrilled. He said that a book about the ACLU that didn't include someone hating on the ACLU <laughs> would be so um, antithetical to the true essence of the ACLU mm-hmm. that it couldn't actually be published. So he was, they embraced it. And then we had this funny experience when we were, we were touring for the book and we were in Boston mm-hmm. and we were being interviewed by the executive director of the ACLU of Massachusetts. And she said that there's a saying, Michael and I always argue about that. No, you got it right now. I got it right now. Yeah. So she, that, she said, there's a saying that if you disagree with the ACLU 50% of the time, you're a member. And if you disagree with the ACLU 75% of the time, you're on the board. That's yes. That's a, that's pretty close to accurate. Yeah. <laughs> uh, but yeah, that's uh it's a common thing that we find out around here that uh, their dissent is always accepted. And we are, I think Anthony refers to us as a noisy organization. So, yeah. mm-hmm. so it's not it's surprising. Right. I that. mean, that's what you want to be, right? I mean, that's like, if you are deeply committed to the notion of free speech, then you get lots of speech and lots of speech means lots of dissent. And, and, you know, the ACLU has, has taken many positions uh, over the years that um, can be hard sometimes, even for um, someone who considers themselves to be a a strong believer in, in the bill of rights, um, you know, in first amendment rights and so on. Um, You know, I mean, that's, I thought, in the introduction in which um, the ACLU was compared to Spider-Man, I thought that was a kind of a great comparison. But, and one thing that she forgot to mention is that Spider-Man's often misunderstood, <laughs> yes. um, you know, and his motives are, are misunderstood. And, um, you know, that's part of the story of these ACLU too. And it's definitely for us in our introduction, we write about how we, um, you know, for both of us in our early teens, having this sort of awakening first to what the ACLU is and what it does, and then to the ACLU's um, um, uh, supporting the right of the American Nazi party to have a permitted march through the streets of Skokie, Illinois, a suburb of Chicago that was home to a huge number of of Holocaust survivors. Um, And that moment when you're 13, 14, 15, however old we were when that was happening, um, you know, of like, wait, I know the First Amendment's incredibly important. I believe in the Constitution, the Bill of Rights. I believe in what the ACLU is doing, but Nazis are bad. And well, we used to have an agreement nationwide. Yeah, the Nazis everyone used to. That's not true. Yeah, now, now, it was it was less ambiguous and and to try to resolve that seeming contradiction and then resolving it and understanding what the underlying how bedrock the underlying principles are you know that's sort of the that was a gateway moment for both of us into really grasping just how difficult how 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 sometimes complex and how incredibly important what the ACLU and I should say that Peter Goldberger your state board president has pointed out that the ACLU did re-examine your permission in those cases and modified the policy and you mean about Citizens United? Yeah, yeah. but not of about course, Nazis. as Peter also points out, no, not well in a way about Nazis because like there's a real difference. I mean, I know that you guys had this sort of crisis too, talking about Charlottesville. I mean, mm-hmm. and and it took a while to kind of say, well, we do support people who uh, support odious speech too, but there's a difference between odious speech and people with, with AR-15s marching mm-hmm. through the streets. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, running people over in their cars. Deliberately and, trying to yes, provoke violence. So it's, um, you know, it, it turns out that it's easier to thread that needle than you think it's going to be, but it's still, you know, complicated and, and challenging. And, and you know, nobody ever knows the um, ultimate, you know, speaking as a lawyer, the the consequences of different rulings in the Supreme Court can sometimes not become clear yeah, for a hundred years. The law years. of unforeseen consequences. Like who would have in thought? In the case you wrote about. Right, right. So um, I wrote about um, O'Connor versus Donnelly, which is um, a case about when uh, about the right of of people who have been um, committed to psychiatric facilities to you know, be free. Like, what does it take for someone who's committed to a psychiatric facility? How long can you keep them? Do they have a right to treatment, which unfortunately it turns out they don't, according to the Supreme Court, bad decision. And do they have a right to their liberty um, if 
if they aren't dangerous to themselves or others. And it was it was not, it was a case that took a long time and a lot of devotion by the ACLU. And finally, the decision was made that an individual has a right to liberty. And if that individual is not dangerous to herself or others, she has a right to not be institutionalized. And um, it was an incredibly important case. It's a case that I wrote about personally because I have a mental illness, I have a mood disorder, and it's quite possible that in a different time and under different circumstances, I would have found myself permanently institutionalized despite the fact that I function very well in society. But it's also a case that has led in part to the crisis of um, the mentally ill homeless that we see on our streets. Now, that's not what anybody wanted, but the idea behind that and the idea behind that ruling and that case and that advocacy was that we should treat people in the community. We should provide people with resources within the community rather than institutionalized. But in the, you know, in the time honored fashion of American society, hmm. we said, oh, you have a right. And that right is to live in the street, poverty stricken, dealing on your own with your mental illness. It was mm-hmm. not to be cared for by a society. It was only half implemented. Yeah, well, right? it's like a half a right. Mm-hmm. Like that's sort of what we see all the time in this society. You know, you have, um, you know, a right to do this, but we don't actually take any responsibility for our citizens. You well, have a like right Gideon, not to wear like, a mask. Uh, right. And just like Gideon, you know, a right to counsel, but we don't uh, fully fund our public defender right, offices. Exactly. In fact, Pennsylvania is the only state exactly. that has, gives zero state funding to the public defender office. Wait, like, is that yeah. really true? That is true. We, our so public, def- where our does, public defenders where does the are funding for the public defender's office come in Pennsylvania counties, the counties funded, except for Philadelphia, which um, has a, a different setup as a nonprofit, but yeah. Mm. Um, and you're making and, and the, the issue, you know, the, about O'Connor and Donaldson, that was 1975. So that was 45 years ago. Um, once every few years at our state legislature, there's a debate about right. loosening the involuntary commitment law right? Um, I mean, to make it easier. Why, right. Because you can understand why we have that debate, right? Because, you know, when you see someone who's clearly in pain, who's clearly uh, unable to care for him or herself out on the street, you want to do something and sort of, you know, involuntary commitment seems like the most sensible thing to do. Again, Certainly the easiest, the easy. Yeah. And again, an ob- in a country where we don't, where we refuse to support people and somehow seem that it makes more sense to spend a fortune incarcerating them rather than actually provide them with a, um, a much less expensive alternative of say housing and mental health treatment. Um, well, and we're seeing that cr- this, the, it crosses multiple issues. You know, we've had in the last two months since September, We've had three police shootings um, in which people were in mental health crisis at the time Mm -hmm. that the police officer shot them. One of them survived. The other two did not. Um, We had a case in State College in 2019 where a young man was in. uh, And these are all people of color. Um, So you have racial justice uh, at, at work here as well. So these issues obviously intersect with each other. And just, you know, like I said, it's been 45 years since O'Connor, but here we are. Um, haven't solved it. You know, it's interesting. We had an experience this summer. We had two experiences this summer that actually are are sort of interesting in the context, the first one in the context of O'Connor. Um, so a young man appeared on our front porch during COVID when nobody was on our front porch, when the doorbell never rang and he was, uh, this is in Berkeley. This is in Berkeley, California, where we live. And he was, um, he was wearing a mask but he was absolutely distraught. Couldn't remember his name. Couldn't remember who he was. Didn't know where he was. Was beyond panic. Very clearly mentally ill. Very clearly uh, terribly disturbed. And um, having some kind of having some kind of psychotic break. We tried to calm him down. We and then um, we sat him down outside. You know, we gave him something to drink. And then I, we thought, what are we going to do? Because calling the police could lead to a series of terrible and really bad outcome. He this is a seem- few weeks after George Floyd's murder, yes. right? And the debate about the inappropriateness of just calling the police to deal with right. all Although, of these situations that... But we'd also, I mean, obviously this is a conversation mm-hmm. we'd had many times before. Mm-hmm. And uh, so first I looked on the web, well, as one does, and there was the City of Berkeley mental health flying team or flying squad. Great. Well, I call them, their hours are very limited, it turns out. Not available. 
And then we, I called up the police and I said, listen, we do not want an armed response. We do not want an aggressive response. This person is not hurting anybody. He is scared. He is mentally ill. This is entirely a mental health issue. We need an ambulance. We do not want scary cops. The first time I called, I was very- It was 911, right? Yes, assertive. And the responder said, you don't get to tell us what kind of response we have. So I hung up the phone. I might have said a profanity. <laughs> um, but eventually we just didn't know what else to do. And this, luckily the second 911 operator was much more understanding. And she dispatched a police officer, um, a woman who came in like, you know, burr, 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 mm-hmm. hands on her gun. But, and it's probably has a lot to do with the fact that we're white. We live in a nice neighborhood and he was white. She took her cues from us. She calmed down. I was like sitting on the ground and he was sort of, we had him on, um, he was lying down at that point. He was lying on a, a, yoga, a, mat. a yoga mat, breathing. <laughs> I had, we were doing this whole breathing thing with him. And so she took her cues from us. The ambulance came. Eventually they took him away. But it was very clear that that could have gone a very different way if we had not been um, white, if he had not been white, if it had been a different neighborhood. And then a week later, five days later? Mm, five days I woke up in the middle of the night. Michael has a studio out in our backyard. Michael works at night and he was working at, in the, in his studio. The dog was with him. And I woke up in the middle of the night and there was a strange man standing over the bed. And a different strange, a different story. At first it was like, wait, what? But it was a completely different strange man. This one was probably also mentally ill, but very dangerous. Um, he slid his hands under the covers. Uh, it was, it was obvious that he was there to commit a sexual assault. I started screaming. Our teenage children saved me. Our, our five foot one tall 19 year old daughter came running in to the bedroom, grabbed him and threw him down the stairs. And the two of them chased him out the door. But it was, and we called 911 again, uh, you know, obviously. And he ended up being captured. Now, of course, the first person they stopped me, our children were very clear in their description of him. They said he is not black. He's brown, maybe Filipino. They gave a very good description of him. But of course, the first person the police stopped was, yes, black. Our daughter was so angry, she burst into hysterical tears. But the next person they stopped was this guy. And then I had to go through a series of like decisions. Well, I we had made this TV show called Unbelievable about... Um, a young woman who gets raped and nobody believes her. It's based on true story. And um, because nobody believed her, this there, the, she was actually, she was prosecuted for filing a false report. Anyway, long story. The guy went on to rape a bunch of women. So because of that, I had clear in my mind that I couldn't just not prosecute because this was a sexually, this was a sexual predator and I couldn't be responsible personally for letting him back in the community. And so I kept looking for, things like alternatives to the sort of traditional incarceration path. But, but I chose to prosecute. And then the question was, what plea would I accept? And I don't believe in the sexual predator watch. What are those things called? The um, Megan's law. Yeah. Yeah. Megan's law. Those, I don't believe in those um, sexual offender registries. I think they're destructive. I think they're, um, they actually defeat the purpose. I think they're cruel. I think they're cruel and unusual. It's punishment. a form of branding. Yeah. So I didn't want that to happen, but it was just so interesting to be a person as devoted to the cause of criminal justice. And then to find yourself trapped in the system with a series of decisions, each one escalating into a worse outcome. And even someone who had like protested in the street after um, George Floyd's murder about and had protests before for Black Lives Matter. That was not our first protest. And uh, but yet, nonetheless, to find myself in a situation where there's a guy in jail and I'm probably going to be testifying against him. And it's not like he's going to be getting any kind of treatment. He's just going to be thrown into this carceral system that I think should be abolished. And anyway, it was really uh, it was complicated. It's been a complicated situation that's made me think. It hasn't made me change my mind at all. In fact, it's made me even more uh, devoted to the notion that there has to be an alternative to this. 
Well, and I know that you guys that, have been thinking very hard about what those alternatives would be. Yeah, yeah. Actually, in fact, right now we're doing some advocacy in the city of Philadelphia as a result of the most recent uh, police shooting there to um, move money from the police department into better mental health crises intervention programs. Um, same kind of situation I described earlier, which is, you know, a young man, a uh, young African-American man um, in the midst of a mental health crisis and um, was shot by the police. So it's everything you're describing just illuminates how this is a, a just a stew of issues um, that we have not figured out how to handle. Michael, I want to ask you about the chapter that you wrote. You wrote about Ulysses. Um, uh, we actually have a question in the Q&A about some of the earlier cases uh, in the book. So I wanted to ask you about that. Why did you choose uh, to write about the publication of Ulysses? Well, I was one of those writers that um, when confronted with the long list of milestone cases in the history of the ACLU, just became completely paralyzed um, with indecision. And, you know, in, in many cases, I think looking at them, I felt for one reason or another, either unqualified or disqualified from writing about it in a in a way that was going to be revelatory or interesting for anyone to read. And then uh, apparently it was our daughter, our oldest daughter, who is a um, who is a PhD uh, candidate at, at the University of California, Irvine, um, who and is into literature, who suggested the Ulysses case to me. Um, and it, it sort of disqualified in a sense, it, it's technically isn't uh, a case that the ACLU had anything to do with, um, but the uh, the principal attorney for the book, Ulysses, uh, was this guy, Morris Ernst, who um, went through his entire life purporting to be a founding member of the ACLU. And I believe if you look on Wikipedia, um, Still, you will see that he is um, he is cited as having been a founding member or founding attorney of the ACLU. Um, I've since um, this since writing this article and having it published, I've discovered from his biographer, from Ernst's own biographer, that in fact that that was false. That was a false claim. He wasn't uh, he was an early supporter of the ACLU member. He was associated with many of the founding attorneys and founders of the ACLU, um, but he was not in fact a founder of the ACLU. So, so much for that. But anyway, that's how he, the, <laughs> but he, he did do ACLU cases and he was an ACLU member. Yes, and, it was he so was. and he worked afterwards. He was very much associated with the ACLU um, when he did finally become, when he became. So that's how he slipped it in. But, so the book kind of, I didn't realize that, but the book, this case got into the book through that doorway, through the Morris Ernst doorway. And, um, you know, I'd always, as soon as, as soon as I heard the suggestion, I, I just took to it immediately because Ulysses is one of my favorite books. Uh, it's a book I've reread a number of times in my life, um, always with more pleasure than the last time. And, um, you know, uh, up until the mid 1980s, every edition of Ulysses published in the United States had Judge Woolsey, the New York Superior Supreme New York Supreme Court Justice yes. uh, Woolsey's um, decision in the Ulysses case printed right up front, and it's the kind of thing you, you might be tempted to skip if you were just trying to get the book started. But um, it's it's always a mistake to skip it. And I, and from the very first time I read the book, I read that decision, which is so charming. It's so beautifully written. I'm talking about the, the judge's decision itself is so beautifully written. It's so full of his personality, his sense of humor, his sense of irony, his kind of gentle um, but firm sense of the importance of things like freedom of speech. Um, it's a delight. It's just a delight to read. So the idea of sort of exploring, and yet it's also kind of mysterious. Like, why is that decision upfront like that? There are plenty of other books um, that had some kind of obscenity um, trial associated with them that uh, don't get published with the legal decision permitting their publication right up front. So to sort of explore that mystery, to um, to find out who Judge Woolsey was, to find out who Morris Ernst was, how this case came into being, um, you know, it intrigued me. And then as soon as I started to do the research, I realized I was really onto something great something really juicy because it's it's the thing i always compare it to is a heist film um it, the the morris ernst's attack on uh 
Comstockery, on censorship, on the use of the United States Post Office as the hammer to beat um, obscenity down uh, as defined by whoever happened to be running the post office at the time. Um, you know, that was his target, like the vault of a bank full of, you know, um, uh, gold bars or whatever. And he set about just like the, you know, the protagonist of one of the oceans movies, he set about pulling off the perfect obscenity trial so that he wanted the perfect book, the book that was going to be unassailably a work of literature, you know, he, and he wanted to have, um, uh, to assemble the team beforehand, the right person for the right job. And it, it really went off like a clockwork operation. You know, they had, they had this, um, they decided to take the approach uh, to not take a first amendment approach effectively and to take the approach that um, through the customs office, through the fact that copies of Ulysses, there's only one publisher for Ulysses at the time, they were in Paris, it was Shakespeare and Company, the famous bookstore begun by Sylvia Beach. And if you wanted Ulysses, that's where you got it, unless you got a pirated edition. And so these copies were always being, people would go to the bookstore when they were in Paris, buy it and bring it back in their luggage, or they would mail it, people in Paris would mail it to people in the US, and that's how it was being seized and destroyed. And so that was the avenue he chose to target it through. And, you know, so there's a really fun moment in the story where they recruit this guy to go to the bookstore in Paris and to buy a copy of Ulysses and put it in his luggage because they know he's coming, entering the, the port of New York. And he comes in with his book in his luggage and he goes through customs and he's nervously just like waiting for them to seize this book um, so that this whole trial can then be set into motion. And they just, they, the guy opens his trunk and sees the book. And he's like, oh yeah, everybody brings that in. And he closes the trunk again and sends him on his way. And the guy's like, now what do I do? And he, he, so he shows up at the offices of Random House that was the publisher that wanted to become the publisher. And in fact, did become the publisher of Ulysses in America and withholding this copy. And like, we don't want that. That's <laughs> the point wasn't to bring it to us. The point was to have it get seized. And so Morris Ernst, the lawyer was so offended and outraged. He like grabbed the copy. He went back down to the docks and just started pigeonholing or rather buttonholing a, a customs officer till he found one that was willing to seize the novel and set this whole thing in operation. But it's a great story with great personalities, great characters, you know, and Judge Woolsey, how he came to write his decision and everything. I just really enjoyed doing it. And of course, it, it was an incredibly important case. It opened the door and obscenity battles can, around literature continued thereafter with many famous cases, Lady Chatterley's Lover and uh, uh, Henry Miller's Topic of Cancer. But uh, you know, that was the one that um, opened the door and really set the, the course of, of that, that led to the great liberalization of literature in this country. You mentioned Sergio de la Pava's uh, piece on Gideon. Were there any other essays for you that are particular favorites? Sure. George, George Saunders' mm -hmm. piece is magnificent. You guys should definitely read that. Um, Jessman Ward. Jessman Ward couldn't write a, you know, a, a sentence that didn't rivet you if she tried. Her, her piece is beautiful. Um, Moriel Rothman Zephyr, a, a young novelist, wrote a really good piece about, um, he grew up in Ohio and, and about those marches and, um, his piece is really great. I mean, there are lots of terrific ones. I would say read them all, mm -hmm. but like, you know, put it in your bathroom. Read exactly. It, read it. Don't and, try to read it all the way through. Do buy it, please, from, um, it is a really bad time now for independent bookstores. We don't know how many are going to survive this COVID time. Amazon, Jeff Bezos has made billion, tens of billions of dollars off this pandemic and are um, being shut in our houses. But the bookstores are all going to uh, go out of business. So please, please go to that link in the chat. Buy the book from the bookstores. Help the ACLU. They're getting all the money from the sales. They're getting our royalties. We're not getting anything. And please support your local bookstore. And we had a question about some of the earlier cases and what, other, uh, what earlier cases are featured in the book. I will say that for myself, two of my favorite uh, writings were um, the essays about um, the Scottsboro Boys cases, mm -hmm. um, Jacqueline Woodson talking about Powell v. Alabama and Patterson v. Alabama. Um, it's only three pages, but boy, it's it's just so it, it brings it brings the 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 boys to life, um, talking about their personal some of their personal um, details. 
mm-hmm. um, in ways that I, I didn't know before. And the other one too, that from, from an earlier time in the ACLU's history is um, Stephen Okazaki's piece on Kuramatsu, yeah. um, which of course famously was not taken by the national ACLU, but was taken by the ACLU right. of North Northern California. And yeah, it, the national and, refused to represent Fred Korematsu in the, uh, or anybody in those Japanese internment caves. But California broke with the national ACLU and, and, and went on to represent him and lose mm-hmm. um, a case that until this current Supreme Court has been a source of great shame for the Supreme Court. Now, I think it's just like par for the course for the six majority, but mm-hmm. we shall see what the next moment will bring. Yeah, bring back Dred Scott next. Well, the thing yes. that I really appreciate, yeah, the thing I really appreciate about the Kuramatsu game into, you know, if we can win the Senate runoffs, maybe we have a hope of uh, getting rid of the filibuster and adding four seats to the Supreme Court and ending <laughs> this, minority this rule. truly these these radical conservative minorities who are doing their minority justices who are doing their best to impose their draconian and. Uh, primitive view of jurisprudence on the rest of the country. So support and, and don't call it packing the court. It's reforming the court. You know, someone in the, in the Q and a asked us about uh, scopes and Kitzmiller um, scopes is not in here, but Kitzmiller is. And I, I actually lived through that. Um, my second day on the job as a part-time organizer for the ACLU of Pennsylvania in Harrisburg, we filed that lawsuit. And I remember talking with our staff attorney in the Harrisburg office, and she said she got a phone call. Hey, they're talking about uh, creationism down here in Dover in York County. And she's <laughs> like, what? you got to be kidding. That, that can't be. That's illegal. And sure enough, they were. Um, but that's a really great chapter. Um, and the thing that is fascinating to me about that as I was reading it is the ending where there's a discussion about things people believe and don't believe. And mm. this is written pre pandemic. Mm-hmm. Right. So, right. Uh, you know, there's discussion about climate change and measles vaccines. Mm-hmm. Um, wow. But it was, it, there, there's, you know, it talks about what happened in the Kitzmiller case and some of the characters, then it also has some insight into. Remind me who wrote that one. Uh, Anthony Dower. Yeah, Anthony Doerr, Tony Doerr, he's, he's a great writer. Mm-hmm. He's also won a Pulitzer Prize winning novelist. Mm-hmm. Um, I, one of the other things I've, I learned as I was reading this is, you know, we, so we think that right now things are so divided and polarized and, mm-hmm. um, you know, there's a split on the court. Although, as you just mentioned, I the the court is tipping in a particular direction. But a number of these cases were also five to four deci- decisions. Yeah. Um, I, that was something that I learned reading this book. Was there anything particular in the midst of this project that you learned that was something that was fascinating for you? Mm. Well, you know, I think, you know, look, I, I went to law school. So, and, and with study civil rights law was something that I studied a lot. So I wouldn't say that I necessarily learned, but I did get a sense that I think we both got the sense that these battles have to be fought over, over and over, and over again. It. And I guess that it's not necessarily something we learned, but something we, that, that came home to us mm-hmm. in a really remarkable way, which is that, that the struggle for civil rights is not a ladder that you just walk up or run. It is this constant, you have to fight and then you have to win and then you have to fight and you have to win again and again and again. And the, the battles are never ending. And, um, you know, the, what is that arc of blah, blah, right, yeah, yeah. Arc arc of of it might, but that bend is real. That's not a very like d- visible arc there. Mm-hmm. And you just have to keep fighting these battles again and again. And, and, and the enemies of civil liberties, the enemies of civil rights, the enemies of free speech, the people that want to limit speech that want to restrict our freedom to associate and all of those things um, never go away. They never no. go away. And they get revived in forms that you, uh, that you that are you would not have imagined. I mean, like there's so many things, right? Like QAnon, mm-hmm. who would have thought? But this kind of anti, um, this this kind of uh, uh, sort of anti-democratic, anti-civil liberties movements just keep on resurging, and that's why I mean, you know, it affirmed for us our commitment to the ACLU, our belief that the 
the effort of putting this book together was absolutely worth every minute of it because the battles are going to have to keep being fought again and again and again, the same ones or different versions of the same ones again and again and again. And to do that, you need the best advocates in the world. Mm-hmm. And you guys are the best advocates Absolutely. in the world. No, and that effort was just an infinitesimal fraction of the effort that, that, that every, ACLU attorneys, you know, um, do every, every single day. day, every day. Well, that may answer my last question, but I'll ask it anyway. Is there anything particular that you hope folks walk away with when they read this book? Um, yeah, I want them to walk away. You know, I always say that the, what I want them to understand when they read this book is that the ACLU is the most patriotic organization in the United States of America. Nobody cares more about the constitution and the uh, possibility of American society and the um, American system than the ACLU does, right? The promise. The promise is, um, the promise that the Constitution offers is something that lots of people grow cynical about, but this organization never does and never stops fighting for. So I think that's what we want people to leave with. And to that sense that we had in 2016 when we read the, that tweet, um, see you in court, that you guys will always have our back as a nation and as people. And that makes all the difference in the world. Mm-hmm. Um, we will close. We do have one last question in the chat. And that was about any of the great Supreme court cases on freedom of religion that came out of Pennsylvania. If they're in the book, uh, mandatory Bible reading school, prayer, the Pittsburgh crash case. Um, they are not interestingly, um, but certainly noteworthy. There are two Pennsylvania cases. I mentioned Kitz Miller and then also uh, Reno v. ACLU, which yeah. was the, um, internet censorship case, um, which our uh, our previous legal director, the late Stephen Presser, was co-counsel on. So there are Pennsylvania. You know, we could do a whole book about mm-hmm. Pennsylvania and the ACLU, mm-hmm. and um, we can give you some tips on how to put it together. But go forth, put that you know, and put that collection together. Use use Pennsylvania writers. Yes, so there's many so great many Pennsylvania great Pennsylvania writers. Pennsylvania writers. Mm-hmm. Well, Michael and I, Ayelet, I really... I'm going to tell you, you wrote the best introduction for us we've ever heard in our lives. Thank you. So I'm going to task you with getting that off the ground. Okay. I'll I'll work on that um, in my spare time. Um, So thank you both so much. I really appreciate your time. The book is fantastic. It's Fight of the Century. Um, It's available at White Whale Bookstore. As you mentioned, you know, independent bookstores are so crucial. um, And folks should check out White Whale to get uh, a signed copy. Um, and so if they're not in Pittsburgh, they can order by mail, but again, thank you both. Um, oh, it's our time. great pleasure. Nice. Thank talking you. To you. We really enjoyed it. Thanks to everyone for joining us. Bye-bye. Thank you, all of you out there that were watching. Thank you. That's Michael Shabon and I yell at Waldman, the editors of fight of the century. You can find a link to purchase a signed copy of the book from white whale bookstore in the show notes. That brings episode 52 to a close. The editor of Speaking Freely is Amy Giacomucci. Our music is from bensound.com. The executive director of the ACLU of Pennsylvania is Reggie Shuford. I'm Andy Hoover. Until next time, be healthy and be free.